0: I was in a conversation, give me a second. I was in a conversation with two friends recently, and one of them asked me if I ever experienced FOMO, if I suffer from FOMO. Now, the reason why they asked me that is because it is known to them that I don't spend much time on social media. Now, for those of you that are confused, what I mean by FOMO fear of missing out very popular term right now, popularized because of the age that we live in where everybody goes onto to Facebook and, see, and it seems like everybody else is living their best life now, except for me. You know, you look at these pictures. Everybody, like the family pictures, I get a kick out of. That ain't look like any family that I've been a part of. Like everybody dressed perfectly. Nobody's crying. Nobody's acting up. No, it's like just perfect family. They probably took like 500 pictures to get that one. And this is what social media does, right? I'm doing things. Look at me. I'm doing things that are so exciting and so fun. And my life is so cool. And the interpretation that you have is in my life kind of stinks, kind of boring. It's this fear of missing out. Now, companies, I was looking at this, companies are actually playing on your fear of missing out. There is whole advertising campaigns that are designed to make you feel like you are missing out. So you see this. Amazon does this all the time. Yeah, I'm on Amazon all the time. You're on Amazon all the time. You go into Amazon and you click on a product, and in some cases, it'll tell you how many are left in stock in red. Only one left in stock. Better click now, because if I don't, somebody else is going to get it. Missing, fear of missing out. Companies do this kind of thing. Have you ever done this? You want to get more information, or you're reading an article, and you start to read it, and then you click on it, and there's like this message that says, if you want to read for, further, you need a gateway code. You need to, you know, you need to sign up. So, so what are they playing on? If wait, there's like this insider information, and I can't get it unless I get the gateway code, and I have to get the gateway code through what? Giving some money, but I pay for it because I don't want to miss out. Hotels do this. Booking.com, Kayak, all of these, Expedia, all these travel services. They do this. How many rooms are left? Only. One room left. I've got to act now. Now, there might be a great deal out there somewhere else, but no, we got to click now because we don't want to miss out on this incredible room. Or, have you ever done this? You do some research, and then they know you did the research, so they send you a little email. And it says, sorry, you missed out. (laughs) That room is now rented. You're going to have to look somewhere else. It's fear of missing out. Fear of missing out is defined in this way. The uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out. Listen to this. This is a definition. That your friends are doing or in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. I'm going to read that again. The uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out, that your friends are doing or they're in the know about or they're in possession of more or something better than you. And I present to you, Thomas, the most serious case of FOMO ever recorded in this case in the, of human history. He is missing out. His disciples and best friends are doing, and they are in the know about, and they are in the position of more or something better than you, Thomas. If, ever, if anybody ever experienced FOMO, it was the disciple Fondly recorded in history, though I might say inaccurately remembered as Doubting Thomas. It tells us right from the beginning, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He missed out. What What did he miss out on? This is a man that has devoted the last three years of his life to following the teachings, following Jesus, following his teachings, experiencing the signs. He's one of the, he's one of the, he's one of the 11, because we subtract Judas out. We've got one of the 11, which tells us that last week when we were talking about Jesus appearing to the first disciples, or appearing to the disciples on the first Easter, that, that Thomas wasn't there so it's likely that there was 10 disciples in that room when he appeared but one of them wasn't there. Th- Why? Why was Thomas not there? Why record this part of the story? Why orchestrate things this way? And Thomas, can you put yourself in Thomas's shoes? He is understandably banged up over this. And you get the sense of that in his language. Unless I see, I know you guys all say you saw. It's pretty, friendship is tense right now. You're saying you, you guys all saw Jesus, but he didn't show himself to me. I, I am missing out on this. No, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, if Thomas had been there and seen Jesus he would have believed too. But he doesn't believe because he hasn't yet seen what they are all have all been chirping about for the last 8 days. We've seen the Lord. Where were you, man? I tell you guys all the time, if you want to get treasure from Scripture, if you want to get treasure from the Word of God, which I believe holds, holds treasure for us, if you want to get it, if you want treasure, you've got to dig. You have to dig. You'll never find gold if you don't dig for it. You've got to dig for treasure. Now, that's not to say that, that, that God is, is hiding things from us. What it is to say, though, is that the Word of God yields itself to faithful searching and digging. And and we got to dig here. We need a character profile of Thomas. Most of the gospel writers only tell us uh, there's only one thing that's recorded about Thomas. It's that he's a doubter. He's kind of this pessimistic, melancholic dude. But John actually gives us some other encounters of Thomas that should inform our understanding of who he is. It's not a lot, but he does give us some. Flip back with me to, to uh, John chapter 11. Do you remember Thomas has shown up a couple of times? Do you remember? Maybe you don't. It's fair if you, if you don't. But he did. And he, in John chapter 11, you'll see in this, the, the heading there that this, there's this, a uh, circumstance that takes place where Lazarus, who is one of Jesus' close friends, brother of Mary's, he has, he has died, Mary and Martha. And so he or it, we learn that he's ill. And Jesus does something really odd. He, he gets this message that Lazarus, your friend, is really ill. Jesus is the kind of person we've learned who can do amazing things. But Jesus hangs out there for two more days. And then eventually he says, Lazarus has died. We have to go. We're going to him now. Seems like he waited too long. So, so he's telling them that we're going to go back to Lazarus. We're going to go to Judea. Well, Now, what you don't remember in the story is right before they, they got to where they are, Jesus had been run out of town with threats of execution. They tried to kill him. And so he, he slipped away with the disciples to where they, where they are in chapter 11. And now he's saying, we're going to go back there. And the disciples go, bad idea. Bad idea. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever in a city where um, they're trying to kill me, and then I get out of that city, I'm not rushing back there. I want to wait till the memory, you know, wait till things subsided. Jesus says he's going back. Disciples say, bad idea. Don't you remember that they tried to kill you there? Jesus tells him, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. So this is in the context of believing. But let us go to him. And then Thomas talks. What's Thomas say? Thomas called the twin said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, you can t- interpret that a number of ways. What do you mean? Is Thomas just one of these zealous guys? Like Jesus is going down. He told us he's going down and we're going with him. Maybe. Or, or maybe he's kind of fatalistic. You know, Jesus is always doing whatever he wants and he's going to go and die. And so let's just us go and get it over with. Put me out of my misery. I don't know you don't know either but we get another we get another we're getting a sketch of thomas so he he we wonder you know is thomas zealous is he just pessimistic is he just a fatalistic melancholic chap we don't know let's look at uh, flip to 14 chapter 14 we get another sighting of thomas now, this scene is Jesus, after eat, he's eaten the final, the last supper with his disciples, he's doing the, he's teaching them. And, he's, and that was a prolonged section of scripture. It's like chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. He's teaching the disciples in his last speech. It's like his last, we call it the farewell discourse. He's talking to them. And he says something to them that really confuses them. And he says, uh, guys, in my father's house are many rooms, he tells them. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that after I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back to you, get you, and take you to be with me where I am for eternity. This is what he tells him. And it's confusing. And Thomas voices his confusion because Jesus says, In verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, time out. No, I don't. No, I don't. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus then blurts out, one of his most famous sayings. So the context of Thomas's doubt and and curiosity is the context for Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You remember that, right? You don't remember that it was preceded by Thomas's question. "Ah, Where are you going? We don't even know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? But a picture of Thomas is starting to form. Thomas is a guy who wants it straight. Don't speak in parables, Jesus. Give it to me plainly. You're too esoteric, Jesus. Thomas, perhaps, is skeptical. Man who can't be put off by mere words. He wants an explanation that he can understand. Thomas is the kind of person that needs to see to the bottom of things before he just jumps. Peter's just going to jump. Thomas, let me see what's down there. Trying to understand things. He's a realist. He wants the facts before he can even pretend to believe. And then we have this scene the end of John chapter 20. And I think we also need to see, and I'll I'll try to portray this, Thomas is hurting. He's not just a skeptic. He's not just a melancholic. He's not just a realist. He's given his life to something. The person he decided to follow that he thought had all the answers Has been crucified brutally on a cross. And he hasn't seen him. The other disciples say they've seen him. Thomas is in pain. You ever been in pain? I know you have. And if you climb into the story, you'll understand his misery. Have you ever felt the jealousy and the rage of a guilty conscience? Have you ever felt the jealousy of a disappointed heart? When good things happen to other people that you could have or should have shared in, but you're absent through your own fault. And then people come telling you, constantly reminding you of what you lost. We've been like Thomas. I don't believe it. It wasn't as true or as good as you say it was. You're exalting yourself over me. Why do it this way? Why leave Thomas in agony for eight days? I believe there's a reason, and it's pertinent for us today. Doubting Thomas serves like a mirror to your soul. You look in the mirror at Thomas and you see and learn something of yourself. Thomas is in the scriptures right here and in this story for me. Thomas is here for you. Thomas is me. Thomas is you. Unbelief and the battle for faith is something that I feel. Unbelief and the battle for faith is something that you feel. I know what it's like to feel not exactly like Thomas, but to feel like Thomas. Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever felt like believing is hard? Have you ever felt that faith is difficult? Well, then you know what it feels like to be Thomas. So I want to give us an organizing structure here for the, for the rest of what we're going to unpack here because this is a sermon about believing, which is another word for faith. If you count how many times the John has used the language of believe, you'll be surprised. He uses the language so many times. He uses the language of belief and believing and believe so many times that it clearly becomes the theme of this section. So, so what we're going to look at is four features of faith. Four features of faith. Four characteristics of faith. And I think there's something in it for us in all of them and I pray that the truth of God's word would have a a powerful but a a helpful effect upon all of our souls. Four features of faith. The first the pain of faith. The pain of faith. Some of y'all not trying to hear me on that. Faith is painful at times. Faith is never a straightforward affair. Faith is never a straight line drawn in the sand that we just walk right down, is it? Am I alone in this? You know this to be true. Hasn't faith been a meandering path? Hasn't it had its climbs? Hasn't it had its stark drop-offs? Hasn't it had those moments of, where am I anyway? Faith is a battle every day with the opposite. Faith is a battle with unbelief. This is the problem with Thomas is that he's unbelieving and it's created agony for him. Faith is a constant battle with unbelief and at times that battle can be very painful, even agonizing. Anybody? Haven't you felt this at times? Have you lived long enough? Teenager, have you lived long enough to know that faith at times, is painful. If you've never felt that, you're about to. Faith isn't easy. I love, I want to be a person that gives it straight. And what I've told you at times is Christianity answers the problem of life, but it doesn't deal with all of the problems of life. And in fact, in becoming a Christian, it creates more problems But in Christ, we find our great joy. We still have troubles, though. And Christianity is not easy. Being a Christian is hard. Faith can be painful. It's painful, and I think there's a few reasons for why Thomas experiences the pain of faith and why we do as well one is it could it can be sometimes our own disposition the pain of faith comes by the way we're wired which which we can't change god made us and he wired us a certain way and he's given us all different personalities and we're way more complex than the enneagram could ever unpack it's helpful some people, have you ever met people that I'd like to consider my, myself this way, but it's the way I'm wired. I even said this to my friends in Fight Club recently. They were saying, Oh, well, it's, it, it seems like you're really trusting God. And I'd say, I'm not sure that it's trusting God. I just have a positive outlook. <laughs> so I don't, don't give, me, don't give me credit that I'm trusting God. It might just be, it's the way I'm wired. But some people, you know, some people are not. Wired as as optimistically. They're wired more pessimistically. They're wired maybe more like Thomas. Your disposition is this. Now all of us can relate to this, but some people more than others. That even if there is a happily ever after, even if there is a happy ending, it's true for others and not true for me. You ever been there? I, this is why I need people to help me fight the good fight of the faith. Because isn't it true that you can have so much faith for other people, but then you go have your own devotions and it's like, where's the faith? <laughs> it's true. We need one another because our disposition sometimes, our, our circumstances make us hard to believe God for our own lives, but we got all kinds of faith for other people. Happy ever, happily ever after is coming for you. But it ain't coming from me. And I know why. Because I'm guilty. Our disposition can lead to pain. Something else leads to Thomas' pain, I believe, and it can lead to ours as well. The pain of faith is what we're talking about. Our disposition, isolation. I was reading uh, Bruce Milne about this. and He was talking about this. But Thomas has cut himself off from community. You see this, right? He hasn't spent. I don't know what brought Thomas to be with them eight days later. Something did. I'm sure he's glad he came. But something had cut him off. For some reason, he wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday. Mary showed up. John and, John and Peter saw the empty tomb. Mary saw Jesus. Jesus said, go back and tell them what you saw. She went back and told them and said he's supposed, we're supposed to wait for him. So go, they go into a room and say, we'll wait for Jesus. We're really fearful. We'll lock the doors. We'll wait for Jesus. Thomas got that message. Thomas knew what they were doing, and he chose to isolate himself. He chose to say, I'm not going there. You guys go on ahead. We isolate ourselves at times in life. We try to work things out on our own. We feel like people can't identify with us. You can't identify with what I'm going through. You can't identify with the suffering I'm enduring. And so what Christians, Christians do this, we isolate ourselves from the very thing that God has provided for us, community. We need one another. Christians aren't a group of isolated, saved individuals. Christians are part of a gospel community. We're meant to do this together. And in moments where we're experiencing any kind of doubt or pressure or trial, that can the, the tendency there is to turn inward and to isolate ourselves. And that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Some of you haven't shown up to missional community for a while. Some of you have been missing fight clubs. Some of you haven't. You come here. You're safe in this big public uh, the, the, the service. But God wants you to be in community, and you're avoiding that. You're isolating yourself, and you wonder why you're experiencing some trouble, some pain, some agony. Um, I was going to read you something, but I'm not going to read it. It's like this. Have you ever watched National Geographic videos? I know you have. I use National Geographic to describe as a category, as a bucket to hold all those wildlife videos that you love watching. But isn't it true when, when, when the lions are closing in, you know when they get in that stalking mode and they're ready and you see the muscles rippling, which one do they go after? When there's a herd, of, of, of zebras or gnus or wildebeests or gazelles, when there's a herd of them, which ones do the lions go after? They always go after the one that's straggling at the back. They isolate that one. That's an easier one. So they go after the young, they go after the weak, they go after the sick. Straggle at the back of the flock and you'll end up Satan's lunch. can't isolate ourselves it's painful when you do that some of y'all i'm speaking to you right now because you've been isolating yourself and the holy spirit is directing you back i gotta talk to somebody i need community it's as simple as saying something to someone you trust faith can be painful Another, so I said faith can be painful because of our disposition or because of isolation, or I would also say, and Milne uh, used this language, this terminology, it can be a contradiction that we're experiencing. That can lead to pain. Disposition, isolation, contradiction. Have you ever experienced some kind of, of contradiction where you feel like, okay, this is what it means to follow Jesus And this is what I thought. This is where I thought I made a decision to follow Jesus. And this is where I thought I would be at this point in time. And I'm not there. Like there's this contradiction. Like I I thought I was trusting you for all of these promises, but I'm not experiencing that. So there's like this contradiction that's taking place. Some contradicting thing has obstructed the path of faith. And often here is where the root of doubt lies. It lies in a contradiction. Something is broken into your world and it seems to contradict everything you've known, everything you've believed. And it starts to block out realities. Have you ever felt this? Like the reality of God's word and the promises of God, God's word can't penetrate the the obstruction of a contradiction. Maybe you can relate to that. Faith can be painful. I know some of you know the pain of faith. I know some of you are currently in a faith that is agonizing. It should greatly encourage us that Jesus does not dismiss Thomas. Aren't you glad that Thomas finally had his unbelieving heart turned into a believing heart through the sight of Jesus? That, that Jesus didn't say, um, Thomas, it's only 10 disciples now, bro. You missed, you missed out on that one. I come, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. I said I was going to die. I said I was going to suffer. I said I was going to die. I said I was going to rise again. And these boys, they believed it. You didn't, you out. Doesn't do that. Who's he come to in this scene? Write to Thomas. And listen, how did he know? He used the same words that Thomas used. He said, Jesus wasn't in the room at this time. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus walks in. Peace to all of you. Thomas, put your finger here. That's what I just said. I said, unless I can do that. Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hands right here. That's what I just said. How did he hear that? How did he know that? It's what we said last week. Jesus is going to get to you. He's going to get to you where you are. He knows your struggle. If you're experiencing the pain of faith right now, Jesus is coming to you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is working all things for good. He's always up to something good, and he's inviting you to look. See, these are my credentials died for you. This is the gospel. You 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 got to believe I'll see you through this. And and Thomas's doubt. He's known as doubting Thomas. I think we should we we could equally make a case for believing Thomas because when Thomas sees what the disciples have already seen, he does something that no other disciple has done yet. He these are the words he says. My Lord, my Kyrios, and my God, my Theos, my Yahweh, this is the most highest. Christological confession of this entire gospel and likely the entire New Testament. So Thomas, remembered as doubting Thomas, moves very quickly to making the highest Christological confession that the New Testament knows. Let's remember him as believing Thomas. Pain It's faith. Faith is painful. I said I'm going to give you four features. (laughs) the pain of faith, the assurance of faith. The last two will be very quick, I promise. This one I'll need a little bit more time to unpack. The assurance of faith. The assurance of faith. We talked about the pain of faith, the assurance of faith. I think that ESV gets the translation right because Jesus responds to Thomas after telling him to put his, uh, his finger in his hands and put his hand to his side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Some translations say, do not doubt, stop doubting and believe. I think the ESV is more accurate. Stop being an unbeliever and believe, which is different than saying to someone, stop your doubting. I think doubting, and I was talking with Shelby about some of this. He wrote a book on doubt. And so I was talking to him, what's the difference between doubt and unbelief? And we were having this dialogue back and forth. It's you and I have doubts. But, but Thomas is in this place where it says, where Jesus said to him, don't disbelieve, but believe. Stop being an unbeliever and become a believer. And then he shows him his resurrected body, at which point Thomas, we see, believes. Unbelief, and I was reading this in in Shelby's words. Unbelief is a conclusion that someone reaches. It's a deliberate decision to live life as if there is no God. But when life gets confusing or difficult, it's natural for us to battle and have doubts. So if you're sitting here with doubts, Jesus will meet you in your doubt. What he doesn't want, though, is for your doubt to turn into a hardened position of unbelief, which is why doubt can be dangerous if you don't battle it. Let me just say one other thing about what provides assurance of faith. It's testimony and experience. And Thomas gets both. Thomas gets eyewitness testimony. Jesus comes to him and shows him. We don't get that. But we do get eyewitness testimony. Where do we get it from? Right here. This is the word of the Lord. That's what I said before we started to read it. This is the word of God. And in it, we have recorded that, that what happened with the disciples is established as historical fact. The, new, the, the reliability of the New Testament documents has been researched. They're highly reliable documents because of all the research they've done with regard to the translations. God sent the Holy Spirit to ensure that though we haven't had an experience of Jesus in the same way that Thomas has, we weren't able to see Jesus, that we're able to see the truth of God's word as recorded by the people who did see Jesus, the eyewitnesses. We've got the word of God, but we need more than the word of God. We need an experience of God. It's not just facts. We need to experience God. And, and Thomas had a powerful encounter with Jesus that resulted in him saying, My Lord, my God, you're everything to me. He he was worshiping Jesus at that moment. And notice in other places of scripture where, where other people other than God get worshiped, they tell them to stop. People tried to worship Paul, they tried to worship Peter, and they stopped them. Get up off your feet. I'm nobody. Jesus, though, actually accepts Thomas's worship. My Lord and my God. And he doesn't stop him. You got it right, Thomas. That's who I am. That's who he wants to be for you your Lord, your Savior, and your God. And it's through this that we have a personal experience of God. You need that. We must have that. Unbelief grows by what it feeds upon. We got a, a, a bucket in our house. We call it the yuck bucket. Sounds really gross. It? it actually is pretty gross. But we have, we have chickens. So all wet scraps don't go into the trash can. They get scraped into the yuck bucket. You got to keep the lid on the yuck bucket, though. <laughs> thing get rank. Ours is like a fancy one. We got like a charcoal filter in the top. Get yourself one of them if you're going to do this. But every once in a while, and I'm, I'm, I'm the one who takes care of the chickens at our house. Nobody else will do this. I, I've been trying. <laughs> Nobody else will do this, though. I take care of the chickens, so it's my responsibility to take care of the yuck bucket. So if I don't take the yuck bucket down to the chickens, things start feeding and growing in there. I'm saying there have been times where I've taken the lid off the yuck bucket to go down to the chickens, and it's been sitting there for a few days. Mm. I mean, nasty stuff is growing. Green, grayish mold It's growing. It's musty. It's crusty. you got to get rid of it. Chickens will eat that kind of stuff. Just dump it out. They'll take care of it. It's got penicillin in there. It's good for them. All right, come on back. Come on back. (laughs) Unbelief grows upon what it feeds upon. And some of you got some musty, crusty, moldy souls because you're feeding on stuff that's actually growing mold. What should you do? You gotta feed on something that grows faith. You gotta feed on the Word. You gotta ask the Holy Spirit to help you to apply the truth of the gospel. That's apply. Stop feeding on stuff that actually grows the mold of unbelief in your heart and start growing, start feeding on things that actually grow a glorious faith in Jesus Christ. Come on, amen. All right, two more, and this is going to be quick, and I meant it to be quick. I had to get through that. So I told you, I told you that there's four features of faith. I said there's the pain of faith, there's the assurance of faith, and there is also the goal of faith. What's the goal of faith? It's real clear. It's the faith has a goal. It's that Jesus would be identified by you and all of creation as my Lord and my God. That's the goal of faith. So another way of saying it is this way. What's the goal of faith? The glory of Christ. The glory of God. That's the goal of our faith. The goal of faith is the fame of Jesus. The goal of faith is not primarily for you. It's for the spreading of the glory of God. It's that Jesus gets the credit for who he is. He said he was the son of God. He suffered. He crucified. Died. And then rose again to vindicate. God vindicated Jesus proving that he actually is who he says he is. He is the son of God. And the goal of your faith is that he would get the credit for that. He would get the glory of that. There's a lot of other things that are competing for your attention. There are a lot of other false claiming deities that live in this world that are wanting you to put your faith and trust in, and they stand in competition to Jesus. At the time of John's writing... And he wrote this many years after all of this took place. Remember, I told you, he's the last of the gospel writers. Paul, who didn't write a gospel, wrote a lot of things earlier than John did. John put this together many years after having followed Jesus and experienced these things. He is writing, likely, from the city of Ephesus, which is a Greek city, which had a very popular phrase at the time. Do you know what it was? People in... Greek people said, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. So when he put that confession in Thomas' mouth, which is likely what Thomas said, he knew that by saying, listen, I want you to read this gospel and you're gonna see right at the end that Thomas is gonna make this confession and it's a confession that stands in stark contrast to Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God, it's Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. Many other lords and gods exist today, though, for our generation. Some of them say money is Lord, money is God. Some of them say power is Lord, power is God. Some of them say popularity is Lord, popularity is God. Some say sex is Lord, sex is God. Some say freedom to do and think whatever you want is Lord, freedom to do whatever you want and think is God. And in the face of all those false claims, we exalt in Jesus, the one who is worthy, to whom we say, you are my Lord and my God. Amen. So I'm asking, have you said that? Have you said that to Jesus? Do you believe that? That's what John's purpose is in writing. Let me ask the band and Jeros to come up. And let me end with my fourth one. It's going to be real quick. I've said that the faith is, there's these features of faith. There's the pain of faith we've talked about. We've talked about the, insurance of, the assurance of faith. We've talked about the goal of faith. And now I end with this, the invitation of faith. The invitation of faith. John's purpose in writing is so clear. Didn't he make it clear? I wish all the books of the Bible made it this clear. Thank you, John. For telling us why you wrote the book. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But they, these are written. I wrote this book. I wrote the book of John so that, and then he gives you his purpose. What was his purpose in in writing? That you would, it's right there, Believe. That you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have, what's it say, church? Life in his name. That's the challenge. John's purpose is so clear, but the challenge rings out to his original readers, and it reverberates and rings out to us. Right in our face. John has made this incredible presentation of Jesus. The signs that he did of his life and his ministry, all the I am sayings, his teachings to the disciples, his death, his resurrection, and then he says, where do you stand? John invites us to respond by believing and committing ourselves into a personal relationship with Jesus as your Lord and your God. Trusting in his death and his sacrificial debt that he paid on your behalf and then following him on the path, the path that he calls the way, the truth, and the life. And the result, John assures us, is life in his name forever and ever. So will you trust him? Will you believe him, church? Will you follow him? Faith is hard. But I believe this is true. Faith is always easier where love and hope are strong. Amen.